Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I'm going to tell Montana about the Citronelle, Alabama massacre. So it's a serious one. Wait, Citronelle? Like the candle? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of. It's, I think it's spelled the same way. But it's a location. Is that where those candles come from? I, I highly doubt it. Uh, I mean, pos- I guess it's possible, but I don't think so. If you're a candle expert, let us know. I don't know why we're getting into this so early. <laughs> Real soon. But first, Montana, what are we drinking? It's a pick your poison. This is a massacre. It's a serious case. So grab your bourbon, grab your wine. wine. Yeah, grab your truly, which I'm actually going to switch to bourbon after this. Probably um, good call. And uh, buckle up, kiddos, unless it's early morning or you're at work or you're in a car. Grab your drinks and I guess let's go. (laughs) All right. Easy enough. Um, So this one was one that's been on my list for a while because I came across it and I'd actually never heard of it, which really surprised me because it's actually pretty recent um, as early as 2016. So it's only, what, not even seven years ago? Um, Yeah. But it is actually considered one of the, if not the, worst mass killings in Mobile County. Six people were murdered in a frenzied killing. Two young women, three young men, and one unborn child. And in the state of Alabama, a person can be charged with the killing of an unborn child as well as the mother. So, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, On August 20th, 2016, about 1 a.m., Someone from inside the house called 911 and reported Derek Deerman was on the property. The police came to the house, but Deerman had already left by the time they arrived. And it also said that they searched the vicinity around the property and kind of down the road a little bit, but they still couldn't find him. At some point before daybreak, Deerman returned to the house while the victims were still asleep and proceeded to kill Shannon Melissa Randall, 35, Joseph Adam Turner, 26, Justin Caleb Reed, 23, and Chelsea Marie Reed, 22, and their unborn child. But and Robert you, Lee Brown, 26. But who is Derek? What? Well, we're going to get there. Okay. I was like, we're just, we're jumping you right know, on into this. I just, I just, jump, you know, I don't ever do the, the stories the same way two times. So this is how we're going to do this one. All of the victims were related in some form or fashion, either by blood or marriage or friendship, you know, like there's like one friend and everybody else is kind of related in some way. Gotcha. Um, Robert Brown was Shannon Randall's brother and Chelsea Reed was Shannon Randall's niece. And the home was Shannon Randall. She was in a relationship with Joseph Turner. Wait, Bobby Brown. Yeah. Well, it was Robert Brown, <laughs> but I guess he could have been called Bobby Brown. I'm sure <laughs> that he was pleased about that at, uh, at some point. I'm sure. Now we're going to introduce a couple of different people, too. Um, So I'm just going to toss it in there. Joseph Turner was Lynetta Lester's brother, and I haven't mentioned that name yet, who had let Lynetta stay with them when she and Dearman broke it off. Okay. Joseph was also in a relationship with Shannon, like I mentioned, Randall, and they had just had their first child who was three months old, Darren. This is getting very convoluted. (laughs) 
yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people involved, but it'll make sense what it's like once I get past it. I just wanted to name specifically the victims that all passed and just kind of, they're all related. Uh, they, they're a very close knit group, obviously, because they were all staying at the house that night. Let's, let's clear this up because there are some misconceptions when it comes to people from Alabama. They're not related <laughs> by blood and having not children blood together. And marriage. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. I mean you had it's 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 back and forth. Like she was related to Justin, who was married to Chelsea. Her husband was the brother of the girlfriend of the person who did all of this. So it kind of goes uh, around. Okay. And then Robert was Shannon's brother. So Shannon was basically related to everyone in some way because her husband's sister was the girlfriend of the person who killed everybody or ex-girlfriend, I guess, gotcha. technically. Okay. So I at, the time, and, <laughs> at the time, Chelsea, Chelsea and Justin were staying with Turner and Randall uh, while they looked for a place to stay themselves. So it was a temporary living situation for them. The couple had only recently discovered that they were having a baby and were reportedly overjoyed about it. Well, good for them. The group had decided to have a small get-together with a cookout and later a movie. They invited Robert Brown as well to, in- to attend. When Dearman showed up the first time, he was told to leave. Then three hours later, he returned and was informed that he was not welcomed on their property. And to further emphasize their point, the police were called. The police even patrolled the area but were unable to locate him. Around 3 a.m., he returned... Why would he be invited and then told not to come? He wasn't invited. No, the, they oh, were he saying wasn't. okay because Robert Brown was there. He was the only one that wasn't living in the house currently. He's oh, the only okay. one of the victims that wasn't living. So they had invited him to come to the get together. So that was just gotcha. kind of I was just explaining why he was there at all because everybody else was currently staying at the house. Okay. Sorry, I could have explained that better, but it's like there's just so much going on. But this was a lot, and I had to go to a lot of different places to get all the information. So uh, the police were called. The police even patrolled the area but were unable to locate him. Around 3 a.m., he returned again and found an axe in a tree. German later stated that he decided, if I can't have Lynetta, they can't have her either. According to Dearman, he knocked on Lester's window and she let him in. He then entered the home and shot the five before taking an axe to them. That's his version of events. According to Lester, the ex-girlfriend, she woke to the sound of gunshots, ran to the other side of the house to find her brother and his wife already shot. She then had to watch as he went to each person and slaughtered them, shooting them with a gun and then striking repeatedly with an axe. It's a bit overkill. Um, A little bit. Like You'll, shooting, with- it'll it'll slightly make more sense when you get more information too. About oh, okay, possibly why. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but pieces fit together one way or another. <clears throat> Based on what I could find, at least one gun, an axe, and other unspecified weapons were used. Per CBSNews.com, Birch told CBS Mobile, uh, Mobile Alabama affiliate, whatever, WKRG. Uh, TV, the victims had the kind of injuries that were a result of what experts term overkill or excessive violence and said that there was a massive amount of blood at the crime scene, which he called obviously horrific. Uh, you don't say. It's overkill? You, you think? 
shooting would have done it, but then he had to continue with the acts. Obviously, it's going to be bad. Okay. Mobile County District Attorney Ashley Rich told reporters that in her 20-year career as a prosecutor, she had never encountered a crime, quote, where there were five people who were more brutally and viciously murdered, and that's what we have here, end quote. Well, that's sad. After the victims were dead, Dearman then forced Lynetta, his estranged girlfriend that had sought refuge in the house, and a three-month-old Darren, Darren was the three-month-old of her brother and his wife's, um, that was their three-month-old, into a vehicle and drove to his sister's house in Greene County, Mississippi. After, he then drove to a friend's parents' house and left the three-month-old before heading to that friend's trailer to sleep with Lester, who's obviously terrified. So she's just going along with it, by the way. I'm just going to go ahead and clear that up. She in no way, shape, or form was ever suspected of being a part of this. She's a hostage. Also, why is he trying to stay alive? Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'll I'll give a couple of ideas of of what that is, but... I'm going to I'm going to be very interested to to hear what your thoughts are about it. Once they woke up, he returned to the house they had left Darren and picked him up and then went to Dearman's father's house because they all lived close by in Mississippi. This is when Lester saw her opportunity to escape. When Dearman exited the vehicle at his dad's house, she quickly hopped into the driver's seat and drove herself and her nephew to the Citronelle Police Department. So Dearman was left at his dad's house. Dearman's dad took him to the Greene County Police Department, where at first he tried to just turn himself in for failing to pay child support. When the police looked him up in their database and failed to find any warrants, Dearman's dad apparently convinced his son to confessing to what he had done. The officers obviously arrested Dearman, and he stated, Through all of this, I truly thought everyone was trying to kidnap and hurt her. After everything, I told my girlfriend to grab the baby and get in the car. She did so out of fear of me. Yeah, obviously she did it out of fear of you because you just murdered everybody in the house except for her and this child. So she's just trying to keep herself and this child alive. Yeah, and can we just hear that Citronelle Police Department? I bet they don't get any mosquitoes. (laughs) Probably not. That's, That's why those candles come from there. (laughs) we have to say something to lighten the mood obviously i can't help he also said he confessed he also said he confessed because he was sober and knew it was the right thing to do he later said he took the two hostages because he was starting to come down and realized what was really happening i'm sorry no according to no no the the whole excuse for like i did this because i was you know, intoxicated, whether that be drugs or alcohol. No, no, it's somehow in you. Mm-hmm. Violence of that nature is somehow in you. I, oh yeah, I, I'm a it's happy like people that uh, that say I didn't mean it when I was drunk. I didn't mean what I said. No, no, no. Two types of people tell the truth: children and drunk people. You're telling yeah. the truth. Maybe it is to say it in the way that you did but you were saying something that you've obviously actually thought yeah exactly that's my yeah that's so, my whole point it's just telling like me i was drunk and i didn't mean it doesn't fly 
No, it doesn't. And I've never, like, I'm obviously, like, not a violent person. I'm a very staunchly non-violent person. There, there has never been a point in time when I, there's been one time when I have been drunk where I have tried to get violent and that was only because somebody was attacking somebody else. I wasn't getting Which violent. That's more self-preservation right there. Yeah. And I, my short ass got tugged away like the small, tiny person that I am. They're like, no, don't do like you're. No, you're 100 pounds soaking wet and you're like five foot nothing. Get out of here. <laughs> you're not going to do anything. But the whole, like, outside of that, like, I, I've never, like, I've, I've never been violent and I've never said anything that was to harm somebody when I've been intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Actively harm them. I might have slipped up and said something I shouldn't have, but didn't realize it. I would say the same. Um, the only time I ever had that feeling of doing something more on the violent side and by violent, like for me, would be like smacking somebody upside the head. That was a toxic ex. And I feel probably justified because he pushed to that point. That was his intent. But yeah, outside of that, nah, this is not something that, that I would ever in my wildest dreams ever think of doing. So all of that to say, I don't find that the intoxication is really an excuse. And that's only from my own experience. Well, and legally for a long time, we're getting into this early, but for legally for a long time, people could use that as a tempor- temporary insanity plea. It's no longer, if, if you think you're going to get away with that, by the way, that's no longer even remotely entertained anymore because it is no longer termed temporary insanity because of being under the influence. No, at some point you chose to be under said influence. So thus you made the choice to allow yourself to get to that point. So it is no longer a valid defense. So if you're thinking about using it, don't bother. It won't. Yeah. Well, and not just that typically, and I have never heard of an instance where this hasn't been the case. There might be, if you know of it, let us know, but somebody being this violent while they're intoxicated this isn't the first time this has happened. I mean, it's the first time it has been deadly. Girl, will you let me tell, tell the case? Cause okay, I'm sorry. Lord. I'm just like, it just, it frustrates me that this is their excuse. Like, uh, be. It almost always is. Be. They at least try responsible. it. Yeah. Be responsible. Well, I mean, even if you are going to be under the influence, be responsible with doing that. So if you're a violent person under the influence of certain things, don't take said certain things that cause you to be violent. If that's the defense you want to use, you know what it does. Don't do it anymore. Yeah, you're a responsible person. It's not difficult. Be be responsible for your own actions. According to Dearman, he was on methamphetamine when he went to the house, which was located at the end of a dead-end dirt road. So yikes! It's a, it's, it's a hardcore <laughs> drug to be on in this situation. So, in all fairness, that does make people pretty violent and manic. Not a justification, but definitely hardcore. Uh, yeah. Quote: Drugs were making me think things that weren't really there. End quote. He also expressed his love for Lester and apologized. Quote: To all the family members. End quote. He also stated the victims were all friends and added a helpful 
don't do drugs for the videotaped comments that were broadcast on mobile on the mobile area TV, stating he didn't deserve to live. Uh, sir, you knowingly and willingly took a very addictive, very volatile drug. Known to make people violent. Yeah. Um, it's, you're still responsible for your actions. So obviously he's, maybe he feels remorseful, but in any case, he's doing the whole, oh, drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. I've learned my lesson. I shouldn't even live. But at the same time, we'll get to it. Obviously, he's going to fight for his life. So. Drugs are bad. Okay. Um, From an article uh, that I found, and it'll be um, in the, all the, articles be in the show notes but this was on um cbsnews.com most of most of the um quotes will be from there but a teenager who said she was related to all five victims by marriage or blood shook her head and fought back tears as she described her anguish over the slangs and i wonder because she was related in one way or another to all of them i wonder if like she might would have been there in other situations and that might have been one reason why she was upset because she may not have been there just because everybody was adults at this gathering but if she knew everybody and was you know some pretty much related to each and every one of them i feel like that's always something that comes up like i could have been yeah. there. um they were really good people they'd call and check on you ask if you want to come down and eat said madison mcdaniel 17 who lives near the scene of the violence Relatives of the victims started an online fundraiser to help cover funeral expenses, and Clerk Dawn Sullivan collected donations in a plastic jug on the counter of the DMB Quick Shop, where the victims often stopped for snacks and drinks. Quote, it's a sad situation. It never should have gotten to this point, end quote, said Sullivan, whose husband was related to one of the victims as well. And uh, so they were well-liked in their community, well-known in their community, this obviously shocked everybody. And like I said, this is considered one of the worst, if not the worst of these situations to hit that area. So where the story seems to start, Derek Dearman and Lynetta Lester started dating in January of 2016. So they had not even been dating a year prior to this, according to their relationship status on Facebook. During the few months that they were together, Dearman was physically abusive towards her. This is corroborated by his ex-wife, who stated in an interview that he had also been abusive not only to herself, but also to his own mother. According to Crystal Dearman, and I'm not sure if that's still her last name, probably not, but in the article it was. What? So he's shown a history of violence. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, according to Crystal who was uh, interviewed sometime shortly after the the crime happened. She left Dearman due to his violent temper. She stated he always had a temper, especially when he didn't get his way. Surprise. I once woke up to him holding a knife to my throat in bed with my baby in the crib. He made threats the entire time we were together and after we were separated. Seems like a safe place to be. Yeah. Crystal was contacted after she made a Facebook post to reassure her friends and family that she and her children were okay and in no way were related to the murders. 
quote, according to a news report earlier this afternoon, my ex-husband is in custody for the murder of five people in Citronelle. I'm writing this post to let everyone know that me and my children were not involved and prayers for those involved, whoever they are, and their their friends and family are in order. Thanks to all my Facebook friends in advance. Which I can kind of understand that because that might have been, if they knew he was abusive to her and to her, they easily could have made that leap. So I can't understand her making that post. Yeah, I I can too. And I'm so like happy she was able to get out of that situation with him. Mm-hmm. And they did unscathed. have a child together well, too. Mostly unscathed. A man came forward and stated that his family had provided a home for Deerman and Lester earlier that year near Leakesville, Mississippi. He said Deerman was often on meth and physically abused Lester during walks in the woods. He would take her out to the woods and beat the crap out of her, quote. It was also believed that Deerman was buying and or selling drugs before moving out later that year. So this is one thing that always bugs me. You know it's happening. And what? Like, well, I know there's only so much you can do, but still, like, I don't know that I could just keep my mouth shut and continue to house a person who's physically abusing another person under my house, under my roof. Well, you also don't know what they're getting from that person, like, as far as drugs are concerned. I mean, addiction is an issue. That's true. It just, ah, this whole situation just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, I see where you're coming from because I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. I'm going to burn all of your shit. I'm going to stab your eyes out. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a violent person. I'll do it to my doll of them. But whole point is, like, I don't think that I would put up with that but I haven't been in that situation so I don't know what I'd be willing to put up with yeah fair I'll also mention that this tragedy occurred about 150 miles southwest of of Rutledge Alabama where six family members were found shot to death at their rural home August of 2002 so this was about this was 14 years earlier in that case, and there's a reason why I'm bringing this up. In that case, Devin Harris was later sentenced to death after his conviction of murder. According to prosecutors, he was angry at his girlfriend's relatives because he believed they were keeping her from him. After slaughtering her relatives, Harris fled with his girlfriend, who was 16 at the time, and their child. She later testified against him in the trial. Obviously, that case is being referenced due to the very chilling similarity with the case that we're talking about. Yeah. But the difference is Uh, the child he took was not their child. It doesn't matter. This is uh, can all be wrapped up into a bow of like toxic fucking masculinity. Let's be realistic here. It's a man who feels out of control, out of control of the situation, out of control of a person he feels like he owns and he needs to control. And so he's taking mm-hmm. rash, irrational like yeah, actions no, to make this happen. So toxic masculinity actually fucking kills people. Let let that be known. That's all I have to say. Well, and I, it I, I wonder if maybe it was either IE or maybe it was in the back of his mind and he was on drugs and it did come up or 
if he used it as kind of a justification of saying, hey, I was on drugs and this is how messed up I was. I took a kid that wasn't even mine and just so happened to be super similar to this other case that happened that everybody in that area knew about. Well, I I don't know that it would be a reference even to that case. I think that you see situations like this a lot in like, um, for instance, family annihilators and things like that. Not always is it actually typically it's because the uh, male has lost control of the family setting or something like that. And that's why they take this. Whatever. Yeah. And it's just a repeat. It's a repeat action that happens a lot in these types of settings where men feel like they have like ownership of like a situation or a person and they suddenly feel out of control of that situation. And the only thing that they can turn to is what they've always been taught. And that's to be strong, violent and to take charge that they have ownership of another person or they have ownership of a situation when they don't. Yeah. So there's my little therapy session for all of you. Well, you actually just kind of beat me to the next uh, like paragraph, but um, at some point Lester decided to move out and live with her brother for a time. It's not clear if they had officially broken up or if this was some kind of break. If I had to guess, I'd say it was probably a breakup. Um, to her but to him it was something very different or that she was thinking break but the more distance from the relationship and him that she got the more the more the relationship was over that's at least how it was in my case when I left my ex I left thinking it was a break I'm just going to get away from this toxic situation the more distance I had the more I realized how toxic it was and that it just wasn't it wasn't something that i could continue to do in either case obviously dearman didn't take it well and he was not willing to respect her wishes whatsoever Uh, yeah Uh, yeah and it happens a lot yeah it does um i.e no is not accepted which is why women have a hard time just telling people no like they're often told to do yeah, and to be, like, completely frank, like, I constantly, whenever you were going through that situation, this is us being open and vulnerable on this podcast for anyone who listens. I constantly worried about him taking some kind of rash action. action, And I'm so thankful to this day, because I know that he could have mm-hmm. with his his past, his behaviors, and all of that stuff. That's why like I acted didn't. in the way that I did. I, you know, I did it when he was gone and I tried to have everything done and I didn't tell him where I was. Um, but for anybody who asked the question, why do you stay? Why did you stay so long? Those types of questions. Look at what happened in this situation. She did leave and she went to a safe place with her brother and she was in a house full of people and all of those people died. So if, if you're one of those people that ask that question, why do they stay? That's why they're terrified of something just like this happening because it very easily can. Yeah. And you can't go get a restraining order for something that's just an innate sense that something might happen. Even if she'd had a restraining order in this situation, they showed up, they called, they were there, they patrolled the area. They still couldn't find him and he still came back. Yeah. And then why didn't you go to the police? 
there's a reason why people can't go to the police because they have gone to the police in the past and they haven't done anything. You can't, the police can't do anything until that person does something to somebody else. And unfortunately in this situation, oh. that thing was a mass murder of, yeah. of an entire family, basically. So just, just food for thought. If you can't tell I'm a little bit heated, on that subject um, due to personal reasons. So we'll move forward. Unfortunately, only weeks after the murders, the sheriff's office received an email saying the house would be burned down. The Citronelle Fire Department was called to the house around 8 a.m. September 4th, but when the firefighters arrived, the house had already been destroyed. While the county sheriff's office said the investigation had been completed and no evidence was destroyed, the family of the victims had not had a chance to retrieve any of their family members' belongings before the house was burned down. From what I could so wait, find, there was no ruling on whether or not arson was confirmed. So somebody threatened to burn it down yeah. and then. And then they were called when they showed up. The house was completely gone. But he was already in he was, yeah, jail? He was already arrested. Who on earth would have. They, I, from all I could tell, they, I don't know how. they. It's all I could see was they said they were investigating it. I never saw any kind of results posted anywhere that I could find. Okay. And I don't well, know how hard they looked, honestly, just because they had already done all of the investigating they needed to do in that situation. So they didn't need anything else from the house. They had everything they needed. So I don't know how hard they really looked, just to be perfectly honest. I mean, they had a huge case in front of them. So. Yeah, they had a huge case, which could have been broken down on appeals and things like that eventually. So, I mean, you take any evidence yeah. that you can get. So that's all I could find on that. After he was charged in preparation for the trial, I guess, Dearman requested to visit the crime scene. Court records, uh, a quote from the website, court records show Dearman of Mississippi requested to visit the home where the murders occurred, located at 17,000 on the 17,000 block of Jim Platt Road with his attorneys to discuss the case. A motion filed by his attorney, Jason... Darley and James B. Balmer states, quote, in order to provide effective assistance of counsel, it is necessary that defense counsel view the crime scene in the presence of Dearman, end quote. Since the home was destroyed by a fire one month after the murders and the complicated nature of these cases, the request states Dearman believes that there is no way for him to explain the situation to his attorneys. His attorneys will need to take pictures, take measurements, and investigate the scene which the motion states the attorneys cannot do without Dearman present. Denial. But they've got, they've got evidence. They've got locked evidence of all of this information already. If they want to reconstruct it, they can do it based off of the evidence that was taken. I, I don't The evidence that the police are using is going to be the same evidence that they're going to use to combat anything. In theory. I mean, I understand. I'm just yeah, like, and they stated that denial of this request would be denying Dearman's rights to due process of the law. But I didn't bullshit. see where it was ruled whether he was able to do that or not. I kind of doubt it. Because um, I don't see the judge saying, yeah, let's let you go back to the scene of the crime. To do what? It's destroyed. There's no possible reason why you would need to be there to explain anything. So I highly doubt it was approved. But I couldn't find one way or the other. Outside of the OJ case, I've never heard anything about, like, a court procedure, like, going back to 
a scene of the crime or whatever. Um, Unless it's a serial killer case where they're trying to locate bodies or something like that, they will take them back. There are a couple cases that I've heard of where they were looking for people. And so they had to take them back to the scene so that they could point out where everything was. Yeah. And that's the defendant going back to show them where somebody's at. As part of what like I was a seal, thinking, typically. Yeah. And what I was thinking about, like with the OJ case, they took the, and I think it was the OJ case. And I might be wrong. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Um, any, anyway, it doesn't matter. Point being is that they took the entire jury there, mm-hmm. like the whole court went there to to like look at this it wasn't just the defendant and their lawyer going no there. i mean his claim is that he needs to be able to in order to explain it to his attorneys his defense he needs to take them there no i, I, I highly doubt that was approved okay sir sure, sure sure he was found guilty of 10 counts of capital murder on september 20th 2018 and the jury recommended the death penalty so 10 counts is definitely more than the number of people murdered. Um, according to AL.com, Dearman was initially charged with six counts of capital murder and two of kidnapping and entered a plea of not guilty on August 31st, 2016. On March 20, 2017, a grand jury indicted him on multiple counts of capital murder, both for murders committed during a burglary and a murder involving multiple victims. So it's like they they did the capital murder for different reasons for the same people. Yeah. I get it. And, you know, again, this is one of those situations you run into it a lot in some of the in these types of cases where they literally throw everything because they want as much to stick as possible. So as long as they feel like they have enough evidence to convict on all of them to some extent, they're going to put all of them on him to try to get as much as possible. Well, and in the appeals process, it means that they can they can overturn one charge, but there's still going to be right. nine other charges or however many more. And he did plead not guilty to the charges in May 2017, even though he did. Again, he obviously confessed because his dad convinced him to do so. I guess he decided to change that. Perryal.com, without ritual or drama, mobile... Uh, circuit court judge Rick Stout said that the court agreed with the jury's recommendation in sentencing the 30-year-old father of two to death. In coming to his conclusion, Judge Stout dispelled myths about Dearman's mental health and notions that his drug use mitigated the murders. Quote, those mitigating factors were found not to exist, said the 72-year-old veteran judge. After the axe attack took place, Dearman then callously shot each victim. End quote. Judge Stout spoke at length and in gruesome detail about how each of the five victims died, describing the axe wounds and then the shootings, only briefly being interrupted by sobbing from one of the victims' families. Dearman pleaded guilty in late September after firing his attorneys. The move came after Stout deemed Dearman mentally fit to stand trial. While most criminal cases would be concluded after a guilty plea, capital offenses are still heard in front of a jury per Alabama law. Because I knew that was going to be a question. Yeah. And denying the motion that Dearman was unfit to stand trial, Judge Stout said, quote, It clearly appeared the defendant does not have such rational 
understandings. His answers to the court's questions were responsive and his understanding of trial proceedings was above normal, the judge wrote. Eye contact was maintained during questioning and nothing regarding his appearance or actions were abnormal, end quote. Dearman was found guilty during that trial and the jury recommended the death penalty for the killing of Robert Lee Brown, Chelsea Marie Reed, Justin Caleb Reed, Joseph Adam Turner, Shannon Melissa Randall. The sixth murder being Chelsea Reed's five-month, uh, well, the baby that she was five months pregnant with. As of December 2022, he is still being held on death row at Hallman Prison in, Al- in Atmore, Alabama, which is where any death row inmate in the state of Alabama is held. Recently, in August of last year, the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals vacated four out of the ten capital murder convictions, just like you said. There we go. Against Derek Dearman. Per MyNBC15.com, Dearman argued that four of the five convictions violate the double jeopardy principles, which prevent a defendant from being tried and convicted on multiple counts of capital murder when they involve the same victims. The appeals court agreed and on Friday recommended the case to the Mobile County Circuit Court. I don't know why that's, it's too many C's, to vacate four of the convictions and the death sentences. The court concluded that on all of the remaining counts, quote, the death penalty was the proper sentence in Dearman's case, end quote. So Dearman still has six capital murder convictions and sentences of death. And he's currently sitting out his sentence waiting on death row. This is why I hate. And this is a short case, but it's one I want. I've I've kind of just wanted to get off of the list. So that is all I have. And now we can talk about all this. Well, this is why I hate the death penalty because it's like, it's like, what's a proper analogy for this? Like he wasted thousands, if not millions, of dollars worth of taxpayer money to do these appeals process to simply still be on death row be in the same situation yeah that he was already in he still like, has six capital murder convictions all with sentences of death so even if he has five more taken off he's still on death row yeah it just it it's like uh, it's like wiping your ass while you're still shitting like it makes no sense I'm sorry to be so vulgar but it was the only was, thing I, I mean think it's a good analogy but wow okay it but just it, mind-blowing to me, just mind-blowing to me that we still have the death penalty in place. Like, he would still have, if he was life in prison, he would still have an appeals process. But the funding that goes towards that mm-hmm. is minuscule in comparison to death penalty cases. And there's and, basically zero chance that anybody that heard this case, I, I highly doubt anybody had a shred of doubt that he committed these crimes. He had a living witness that he kidnapped who gave testimony and told exactly what happened. He had two living witnesses. Well, the three-month-old's not going to be able to say much, but, or remember much. But he also had his dad who convinced him to confess. So he had told his dad what happened. So, I mean, there was no question about whether he did this or not. The question was basically... Is it severe enough that he should be convicted of capital murder? And if so, the death penalty. And I feel like, I, I mean, I agree with you. It, I would be fine with him having life in prison. It would have been, it, it would be cheaper 
than the appeals process that's already been proven many, many, many times over. And nobody wants him to get out. So life without the ability for parole, done. You can yeah, away. and not to mention, every time these appeals or anything like that comes up, you're just, you're re-traumatizing mm-hmm. your, the, the, the survivors yeah. of your victims or the victims of that crime over and over again because they have to show up. They have to, they have to be there. They think it's over and done with, but it's never over and done with. And it gets back in the news and then they have to hear about it every single time. Cause I'm sure, I mean, this whole family lived in this area. So they, the, the rest of their family probably still lives in that area. So they hear it every single time it comes up because news reporters are going to report on this because it's a local crime and it just reopens that womb, just opens it right back up. And I think it hits on like this entire case hits on like several different issues that we unfortunately see a lot. And especially when you're doing a true crime podcast or a spooky podcast that has true crime in it. Um, And that's the failings of our like judicial system and our, you know, the entire thing you you've got, you've got police that can't do anything until something bad has already happened you've got um, a failing as far as like how mental health is dealt with and how like abusive situations are dealt with. You've got a failing in the part of like, quite frankly, just the death sentences in and of itself and all of that. And like, I'm a big fan of the appeals process. I think it's a great thing because I think a lot of people get sentenced to death without having the actual evidence to be sentenced to death, especially when it comes to minorities and things like that. But I think that in a lot of these cases and like these higher end cases, it get it gets used to delay the death sentence in and of mm-hmm. itself and just use up, you know, government funding that could be spent towards all of those programs to help alleviate these problems before they even come up. Yeah. I mean, and I looked through the appeals briefly, um, and honestly, that was pretty much the only appeal that they had that was worth anything, was that the double double jeopardy um, principle of it, and them getting these four taken off. Okay, great. Um, But you know that there's still six, and you know that he's not getting out. So that was literally to delay the process and to waste money, because it did not, when it all comes down to it, it didn't make any difference and they're not going they don't have anything for the last six so that's not something that they were even fighting so please again tell me what benefit it was that we vacated four of these so now instead of killing him ten times we can only kill him six yeah well like like I said it's like wiping your ass while you're still actively taking a shit uh like I mean, I know that we all have rights and I'm all for that. It's just, it's very frustrating in situations like this where the road that they're going down for those appeals, they already know it's not going to really change anything, but Mm -hmm. they, they're going to do it anyway and they have to do it. So, you know, it is what it is, but, um, so yeah, that, uh, that the one, the re one of the reasons why I, I, I've been wanting to do this one is just the whole, I was on drugs. The drugs made me do it. Cause I've, I've heard that on a lot of different cases, especially with people that are teenagers or young adults. 
and yeah. it, it's just it's mind blowing how people still feel like they can use that as an excuse or a justification in what they were like. There was no part of what he said as a response as to quote, why he did this. No part of that was justifiable or a valid excuse. There was no reason for him to be at that house whatsoever, let alone while on drugs and to do the things that he did. No, absolutely not. And it goes back to what I said earlier. It's that every right to say goodbye, leave me alone. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, this is domestic abuse. It's toxic masculinity at its finest. You know, it's it's all of those things. And it always comes down to somebody feeling like they're not in control of the situation and they're going to be rash in how they execute taking control back. Because people who are in that mindset don't have rational thoughts. They're going to go to the most extreme to get control back of a situation. And that means murdering people. Yeah, and I just, the whole situation just, drugs are are a hell of a thing. Um, But a person with a certain mindset on said drugs is a whole other ball game. And just to this extent, like just yeah. mind blowing. I just, I, I can't understand it in any situation whatsoever, but this is what can happen. So yeah, don't do drugs. Um, don't especially do drugs. if you have violent tendencies without them. I mean, you know, smoke a little wacky tobacco. If you, if you're feeling fancy or froggy, but make sure it's the time it chills you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the indica or the sativa? I know. <laughs> I think I would know. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, good job on this case, like, hands down. And I just want to say for anyone who's out there listening, and if they are dealing with a domestic violence situation or anything like that, there is a hotline that you can reach out to. And it is... 800-799-7233. If you or anybody that you love finds themselves in a situation like that, um, there are resources if you call that number. But and yeah, talk to your friends job. and family. Yeah, definitely. Tell them what's going on. I know it's hard. I know it's hard and it's hard to even see it. But And listen to them if they're speaking to you and are concerned. They're probably seeing things and they don't understand what's going on. Montana was a huge piece for me. Um, and a huge reason why I saw what I saw. So hold on to those that hey. love you. It's because I can't shut my fucking mouth. <laughs> well, <there's that. laughs> Very true. Uh, well, great job. This has been a heavy episode. I'm going to go play Pokemon now. Uh, but before I do that, Samantha, where can our listeners find us on the medias, the social medias? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Reaper Tales Podcast. Uh, how do they email us? You can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. Uh, email us your show suggestions. Email us to bug me on Thursday nights. Comments, some of you. comments on our other episodes, like uh, corrections, yeah. or if you want to send us a picture, like apparently my cousin did, of the bargain bin 
ton that she found. I can't believe that. It's still mind blowing to me. But by all means, uh, yeah, give us some feedback, whatever that feedback looks like. We appreciate it. Yep, certainly do. Like, um, rate, review, subscribe, all of the things. Uh, if you're feeling so inclined to do so, if you might leave a couple of words with your review, that also helps as well. We appreciate it and love you much for it. Definitely do. And until next time, I don't know if I'm going to do a light one next week or if I'm going to do a heavy one. Buckle up, buckaroos. It's probably going to be heavy. All right. Until next time. Love you. Mean it. Bye. The Reaper will come.